Hi there. Welcome to the First Baptist Church of Oregon City Sermons Podcast. I'm Pastor John Witham. This week's sermon is called, Who Is This? The sermon text is Matthew 21, 1-11, and it is our sermon for Palm Sunday. The supplemental scripture reading is Zechariah 9, 9-12 from the Old Testament. Now you'll have to forgive the beginning of the sermon recording because I forgot to hit record, and so there's just a little bit that's cut off, but I still think you can catch uh, the whole gist of the opening illustration uh, given what's there. Our Sunday morning worship services take place every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. in our building at 819 John Adams Street. That is at the corner of 9th and John Adams in Oregon City, Oregon. For more information or to get in touch, visit our website at onebaptistchurch.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We, we did not have uh, a whole lot of money to do anything with. I'd had uh, gallbladder issues uh, the previous February, and we had medical bills to pay. But nonetheless, people were kind to us, and some people gave us a little bit of money, and we went on vacation. Uh, and rather ambitiously, from the greater Chicago area, we chose to go on vacation to Mount Rushmore, uh, we'd never seen Mount Rushmore, we'd never been to Mount Rushmore, and so we, we go. And we were there, we found a little inexpensive cabin that we could stay at, not too far from the, uh, from the, the monument. And we, we were there, and as we had driven in, we saw a little place off the side of the road called A Taste of Norway. Oh, that's interesting, we've never had Norwegian food before. And so we thought, okay, one day we need to go to, to a taste of Norway for lunch. Sounds good. So that appointed day came and we decided, let's go to a taste of Norway. All right. So we show up and we park and we walk in and they've got all these gifts and, and trinkets and, and things like that. And uh, very reminiscent of a Scandinavian Cracker Barrel. You know, you go in and they've got all this stuff there for you to buy, like on your way back out. And so we thought, oh, well, we'll look around here for a little bit. And so we looked around at the gift shop. And then I kind of looked at Katie and said, well, I'm getting hungry. Are you ready for, are you ready to go to the, the dining room? And she said, sure. And so we go over to the, the shopkeeper who was standing there and we said, uh, which way, is the, which way is the dining room? You know, where's, where's the, the rest of the restaurant? Oh, there's no restaurant. It's called A Taste of Norway. Right. And this is giving you a little taste of Norway as she uh, gestures around the shop. <laughs> and I said, so what you're telling me is there's no lunch. And she said, no, this is a gift shop. And she was getting really irritated about it. And I'm standing, I'm stood there going, it's called a taste of Norway. Where's the food? There was no food. Fast forward nine years, 
And uh, my friend Donovan, who drove cross-country with me as I was moving across the country, he'd never been to Mount Rushmore. We needed a place to stop for the night. And so we go to Rapid City, South Dakota. And lo and behold, they had changed their name to the House of Scandinavia. (laughs) Expectations can be a funny thing. And when you have your expectations misplaced, you walk into a gift shop thinking that you're going to get lunch. Now, if you would like Scandinavian food, on 7th Street in Oregon City, at the bottom of the Oregon City elevator, you can find Ingrid Scandinavian fare, uh, which I, as somebody who doesn't do well with milk and butter, have never eaten their food, but I am told that it is very good. I didn't get paid to plug Ingrid Scandinavian, just for the record. But when we have expectations that are misplaced, we get let down. Because after a taste of Norway, Katie and I then had to go find a taste of lunch somewhere. And we did. And I want to, as, as, we, as we move into scripture, I want to take this, this thought of misplaced expectations and look at the scripture passage for today. Specifically the end, when it said that the, uh, the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar and some people came asking, who is this? It's a valid question to ask of a man on a donkey and people have thrown their garments on the ground. They are ripping trees apart and throwing those on the ground And now they're all walking, and now Jesus is processing on a donkey into the city. Who is this is a valid question. But we have to talk about the answer that was given. Because the answer that was given was, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They're right, and they're also wrong. They're right in the sense that Jesus is fulfilling prophetic actions. And when we we hear this word prophecy, prophet, that sort of thing, we usually think somebody who tells the future. But in the Bible, a person who who does prophecy, who, who takes prophetic actions, is somebody who is revealing deeper truths about what's going on but in ways that the actions taken reveal these deeper truths. So when we hear that Jesus is a prophet, yes. Jesus is doing something in the same vein as Jeremiah, who uh, was told to lay on one side, uh, who was told to who was told to do a number of different prophetic actions. Hosea, who was told to go and take a woman of the night as a wife. Uh, Prophetic actions such as when Ezekiel cut off scripts of of a scroll and ate it. These are prophetic actions that reveal deeper truths about what was going on. Hosea was told to marry an unfaithful wife to demonstrate how God's people were being unfaithful to Yahweh. Ezekiel was told to eat the scroll of the Torah and that it tasted like honey on his lips. 
He's revealing a deeper truth about what's going on. And so Jesus is riding in on a donkey, and this is a prophetic action because he's revealing, yes, he is a king. He has every right to claim the kingly action that he's taking here. The, the king, as, as early as, uh, as Saul and David and Solomon, had the right to demand any animal uh, as conveyance, uh, as, as something to take the king from one place to another. And so if the king wanted that donkey, the king got that donkey. Well, I said I was done talking about Jesus' miracles last week, but then there's another one thrown in here for free, in that Jesus tells his disciples, go and find this donkey, and if they ask you, like, why you're taking it, just say, the master has need of it. Okay. If one of you woke up one morning and found somebody uh, getting into your car and trying to, to hotwire it, and they said, the master has need of it, I think we might have some opinions about that and would like a word with that master. <laughs> but yet, Christ says, this donkey is mine, and thus it is. Did he return the donkey? These are questions I don't have answers to. And so Jesus goes riding in on a donkey. It fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah that David's heir is going to return to Jerusalem and establish a peaceable kingdom. What? Riding on the back of a donkey. He is fulfilling this prediction as he does this. He's also taking up symbolic roles of the Messiah. About 150, 200 years before Jesus was uh, was doing this, a man named Judah Maccabee, Judas Maccabeus, who had one of the coolest nicknames in all of history, Judah the Hammer, If you're nicknamed the hammer, like, yeah, the hammer gets stuff done. And and so Judah the hammer, Judah Maccabeus, Judah Maccabee defeated uh, people who were oppressing Israel at the time. This is the uh, the oppressing God's people. This is the story of Hanukkah. And he rides into Jerusalem through the same gate that Jesus is on the back of a donkey. And so it was presumed that Jesus is going to, at some point, overthrow the Roman occupiers, the colonizers, the people who didn't have any business being in charge of God's people, that God should be in charge of God's people. And so they were right in saying that Jesus was a prophet, but what they had gotten wrong, fundamentally wrong, is what Jesus was up to. Because, yes, Jesus is bearing into these prophetic actions. He's living out these prophetic actions. But Jesus is also doing this in a way that, that speaks to the type of king that he's going to be. He's going to be a humble king. He's riding in on a donkey, a young donkey at that. When people are throwing their cloaks down on the ground, essentially, they are throwing 
they're, they're, are, are stripping down half naked, they will, would still have their tunic on, but that would be considered something of an undergarment. And so they would be throwing their cloaks on the ground, somewhat humiliating themselves to honor Jesus. And they are waving palm branches and they are throwing palm branches on the ground so that Jesus can walk over this because that's what Judah Maccabee did. They cut off palm branches and threw them down so that Judah the hammer could walk over those as he entered Jerusalem. And he liked it to the point that he put it on all of his coinage, that there was a palm branch on the coinage. The people are misunderstanding what type of king Jesus is. And I wish I could say that in the intervening 2,000 years, give or take a couple decades, that we had learned better, but we haven't. But we all have to answer this question, who is this? Because we, as followers of Jesus, we as humanity, we are confronted with Jesus riding into our lives on a donkey. We are confronted with this man, Jesus. And we have to all answer this question, who is this? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, which I highly recommend, proposed that there are three responses to Jesus. That you could say that he is a liar, that he was one of the, the greatest hucksters that ever existed in the history of the world, that he was a snake oil salesman of top repute. You could say that he was a lunatic, that he was not dissimilar to somebody who runs down the street shouting that they're a boiled egg. Or you could say Jesus is Lord. And I'm not going to be one to dispute C.S. Lewis on too many, uh, too many issues. But what I will say is this. Is even within those of us who say Jesus is Lord, we can still get this lordship wrong. Because we sometimes put our expectations on Jesus rather than us looking at Jesus and realigning our own expectations. When we put our expectations on Jesus, we fundamentally get wrong a lot of what Jesus is about. Let me give you a few examples. We, we misplace our expectations when we only talk about Jesus as a personal savior. As if Jesus is a way for us to just have another different kind of a religious experience. That, that Jesus is my personal savior, that it's, it's just a personal preference and choice that I have made. And so I'm going to have Jesus in my heart and that's where Jesus belongs. And so I can get on with the rest of what I want to do as long as Jesus is my personal savior. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a personal element of what Jesus is talking about. As I said earlier, we all have to answer this question. Who is this? It's a question we all have to answer. 
But Jesus makes it very clear in the things that he says, in the things that he has done in the other 20 chapters of Matthew up to this point, that he is not particularly interested in just having some sort of a, an individualized spiritual awakening. Especially if you look at Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, when Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, he is laying out a new way that the world is supposed to operate. And we operate within that. But this idea that we can, we can have Jesus in here and then go do whatever else we want to, is we expect Jesus to just do something within us, but then we're going to go ahead and get about the real business, and so we can come on Sunday morning to church, and then when we walk out the doors, we can go back to a world and and get business done. We are putting our expectation that, that Jesus is going to fulfill one of our needs, and then get out of the way. That's a misplaced expectation. Another misplaced expectation is that Jesus is going to be a political mascot that we can roll out and have him support whatever particular cause we want him to support, uh, much like a, a cardboard advertising cutout at the gas station. I heard the other day that there are some politicians, it's, it's, it's this mid-year election. It's this unsavory thing. We've got to do this every few years. And no, I'm not against free elections. Uh, but at the same time, I, I just find, uh, I find the whole machine of divisiveness and enemy-making distasteful. So I'm reading this article, and there are some people who are, are getting ready, jockeying into positions for their, their power that they want to rise to. And they're having these campaign rallies. And at these campaign rallies, they're having like praise and worship time. And, and so I'm reading on. And yeah, they're having like praise and worship time. They're singing Christian songs. They're singing songs not unlike the ones that we sing here on Sunday morning, and then some politician gets up and, and bangs on for uh, however long she or he decides to bang on for about why they ought to be elected. And when we do this to Jesus, then, sorry, I, I got to say one more thing about this. And then they have the audacity to say, well, this is a Jesus movement. My candidacy is a, is a Jesus movement. And the minute you start saying stuff like that, you say to me, all, you may say, my candidacy is a Jesus movement. And all I hear is, I don't understand Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't come in as a conquering king. If Jesus wanted to come in as a conquering king, he was going to be confronting the lot that was coming in through the other side of Jerusalem. Because the Roman army, to back up Pontius Pilate, during the Passover festivities, which was always a time of, of fervent nationalism amongst the, the Jewish people at that time, the Roman army was coming in to back up Pontius Pilate. And Jesus, if he was going to be that type of ruler, that top-down power ruler with the iron fist, then he was going to have to confront that lot. And the guy on the donkey is clearly not going to do that. Whenever we roll out Jesus 
into whatever political party or, uh, or charity or cause uh, that seems to fit our mood that day, we're kind of doing the opposite of the first expectation that we get wrong. We're saying that, that we want Jesus to be part of this big top-down power structure fix of our world, but just leave us alone as we, you know, kind of run the show. Because this is something that we actually do when we do this fallacy, when we, when we misplace this expectation. It's something that we do have in common with people of Jesus' day. Is this expectation that Jesus is going to be a Messiah like Judah Maccabee? That Jesus is going to be a Messiah with a sword in his hand. And Jesus very much isn't. Another difficulty, another misplaced expectation that we have is that Jesus is going to be our cosmic fix-it guy. That he's going to be the... If you ever watch like a, a mob movie, they've got a guy that's like the fixer. He comes in when everything's gone wrong and he, he cleans everything up in a very sudden and, well, in, in mob movies, usually violent way. But we, we put this expectation on Jesus that he's going to be our, our cosmic handyman who's ready to drop in on our schedule and fix our problems. And we don't want Jesus to be like the cable guy. No offense to anybody who works for the cable company. Uh, but when the cable company says, yeah, uh, we, we're going to give you, an, we, we schedule our appointments and we're going to schedule our appointment. We will be here between 8 a.m. Tuesday, April the, the 12th and 9 p.m. on Monday, September the 26th. <laughs> we'll be there sometime. That's your appointment. Go crazy. You know, just wait around. Make sure you're home so that you can let us in. Uh, no, we don't want Jesus like that. We want Jesus now because Hosanna, this cry of Hosanna, when it was on the lips of the people as Jesus marched into Jerusalem, it wasn't save us in a very long-term and cosmic way. It was save us now. Salvation now. Not salvation later. Not salvation yet to come. Not the, the grand defeat of sin and death, they wanted salvation now. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Romans now. They wanted Jesus to purify the temple now. They wanted to get this going. They weren't interested in waiting for Jesus to defeat the dark powers that caused one group of humans to want to conquer another group of humans at the tip of a sword. And we do this too. Sometimes we expect that we can just kind of coast through our, our lives as followers of Jesus. And then we hit a speed bump and we cry out, Jesus, save us. And we want Jesus' salvation when? Right now. Because we're in the thick of it right now. And this is not to say that God doesn't hear our prayers and respond. This isn't to say that there aren't times that God absolutely says, yes, right, you're in trouble, I am going to rescue you. But there are a lot of times that that rescue 
doesn't come on our schedule. We can get it wrong even within that Lord category of liar, lunatic, and Lord. We can completely misplace our expectations of Jesus. We need a realignment. We need the opportunity to say, Jesus, this is who you are. And I'm going to align my expectations of you the way that I want you to show up in my life based on who you are, Jesus, not based on what I want from you. If you've ever had kids, or if you've ever been in charge of kids or, or looked after kids, you'll know that there are things that children want in the immediate moment that either A, may not be the best thing for them, or B, will be a much better thing at a different time. And that's the same way it is with us. And we have difficulty understanding that. But how do we do this? How do we do this realignment? How do we align our expectations to Jesus, not force Jesus into our expectations? I've got three ideas. The first is to become deeply acquainted with Jesus in the Gospels. If you look at the, at the, the, the Christian holidays that are the holy days, that are emphasized in our world. It's Christmas and it's Easter. Maybe a little bit of Good Friday. But we're interested in getting Jesus born, getting him here, and we're interested in getting Jesus out of the grave. But then all of this business about, you know, healing the sick, loving your enemies, uh, Praying for your enemies, not worrying. We're just over that. And so we skip over it. Between Christmas and Easter, we jump over it. That's why we're very careful in our church to walk through the scriptures with Jesus. We need to become deeply acquainted with who Jesus is. The point of scripture is so that we can get to know Jesus and that we can then read scripture through the eyes of Jesus. And if it's been a while since you've read through the Gospels, I highly encourage you to take that opportunity. Because when we meet Jesus in the Gospels, we meet Jesus who teaches and preaches, but who loves and cares and, and who is God who has moved into our neighborhood. We need to meet this person and become deeply acquainted with this person just as, as we've become deeply acquainted with a spouse or somebody that we love or, or a friend that we've had for a very long time. We need to cultivate the practice of waiting on the Lord. And in our in our world that moves at the speed of information and has things like the never-ending 
Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter feed, our world that has 24-hour news channels, our world that has, uh, has unending distractions. Cultivating patience is very difficult. And I'm not one much to talk. I'm stepping my own toes up here. Because it's so easy and mindless to just scroll through social media because you feel like you can be in control of something. And it's so easy to watch 24-hour news because when you don't feel like you're in control of the world, you at least can know what's going on. We need to cultivate waiting upon the Lord and not expecting everything to be immediate. We need to cultivate a patience for God's deliverance. We need to cultivate a patience for God's healing. We need to cultivate a a perspective on time that matches up with God's perspective on time and not our limited perspective on time. And we need to practice the presence of Jesus in community. And it starts here. We practice paying attention to where Jesus is present in our midst here within the church. The first and third Sundays of the month, we attend to Jesus being present with us at the Lord's table. Every Sunday, as we have conversations before and after church, as we go to coffee time, as we go to coffee time later, we'll have conversations with people and there will be times that we will we'll see what God is doing. We'll see where there are opportunities to pray for each other and lift each other up. And we pay attention to that here so that when we go into our homes and our, our daily walk in life, We can pay attention to how God is present there and make space for God to to be present there, for Jesus to, uh, to bring healing and forgiveness and reconciliation and hope into situations that are broken and hopeless. And as we go into places where the, the, the Lordship of Jesus is not recognized openly and where we may not expect Jesus to be present, we remember that there is nowhere we can go outside of the presence and lordship of Jesus. And so we pay attention, having learned to pay attention to Jesus in other spaces, we learn to look for Jesus everywhere we go. If we do these things, and we dig deep into these things, and it's not just these things, there's, there's numerous spiritual practices that you can engage with to draw deeper, deeper into the life of Jesus, into aligning our expectations with Jesus. Our Lenten prayer emphasis this week, our our last one, is to, to consider praying the hours, which just basically means take the Lord's Prayer and a few times a day say the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you say it at every meal. Maybe you say it after every meal. Maybe you set some alarms on your phone, and whenever your alarm goes off, you stop, you go somewhere, you stand where you are, and you pray the Lord's Prayer. This draws us deeper into aligning our expectations 
to Jesus. I want to end by looking at the cloaks on the ground. We know the type of people who followed Jesus around. Jesus wasn't real popular with the religious leaders of his time. He wasn't real popular with the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He was pretty popular with those who had very little. He was well known amongst lepers, people who had, who, of whom he had cast demons out. And so you, you can kind of infer that the people who threw their cloaks on the ground, that may have been the only cloak they had to throw. But they threw what they had to recognize Jesus. And as we ask ourselves, who is this this week? My prayer is that we can throw all we have at aligning our lives with the unforced rhythms of grace that Jesus offers us. That as we see this king, as we see this king marching into Jerusalem and we let out our joyous shouts, that we are giving Jesus all we have, that we are letting Jesus into every part of us, that we are opening our eyes to the presence of Jesus in the world. Because when we do this, we see a king who is coming in peace to overthrow sin and death. And when that happens, it doesn't look like the top-down worldly power structures that we see. But rather, it looks like a man on a cross. Who is this? It's something to think about.